0: Our last time to turn to Joshua this morning as we conclude our series of messages here through the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 24. Bye, Charlotte. <laughs> Oh, boy, just drove down to Columbus uh, last weekend and celebrate Natalie's 25th birthday. Don't blink. If you've got kids at home, don't blink. If you do, you'll, you'll completely miss it. Father, again, thank you for your word. We pray you'll bless us this morning as we study. In Jesus' name, Lord, help us to be people of influence. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, Robert Bella is a sociologist at the University of California in Berkeley, and Bella is an expert on the influence of religion in society. In fact, in a recent interview with Psychology Today, Bella observed, we should not underestimate the significance of the small group of people who have a new vision of a just and gentle world. Bella points out that the quality of an entire culture can be changed when just 2% of the population adopt a new vision. Well, for Christian leaders, Bella's comment is encouraging. It doesn't take a vast majority of people to effect a sweeping reformation. But Bella's statement is also as troublesome as it is optimistic. For by even the most conservative estimates... The number of Christians in our country today is far more than 2%. So where is our influence? Do we truly believe what we say we believe? Do our lives carry a fresh vision of the Christian gospel? Are we making an impact? Well, tragically, our problems in the culture are dwarfed only by our problems in the church. And this is why for the last nine weeks, we've been studying through the book of Joshua and we've been tackling the theme, how to be a person of influence. The church today needs men and women of influence, folks with a contagious faith, Christians of conviction who hold sway with others. And the book of Joshua is a great place to go. It's full of people of influence. In the book, we've noted some habits of influential people. In chapter 1, we talked about how Joshua served an apprenticeship with Moses and made preparation for a lifetime of influence. In chapter 2, Rahab the harlot seized an opportunity. She sided with the Israeli spies and she influenced her family. In chapters 3 and 4, the nation crossed the Jordan River, overcoming their limitations. In chapter 5, Joshua meets the commander of the Lord and he settles his allegiances. In chapter 6, Israel faces their foes. In chapter 7, victory is regained once Achan admits his sin. A Gibeonite deception in chapter 9 shows how far Joshua will go to keep his promises. In chapter 10, God even tinkers with the earth's rotation so Israel can finish a task. And after all these battles are won, Joshua divvies up the land to Israel's 12 tribes and shares his success. And today, we'll see how the, an aged Joshua summons the nation and its leaders together to issue to them a final challenge. When we add it all up, we learn that people of influence, they make preparation. And they seize opportunities. And they overcome limitations. And they settle allegiances, and they face foes, and they admit failures, and they keep promises, and they finish tasks, and they share successes, and then this morning they issue challenges. I hope you're cultivating habits that influence. Well, on April the 19th, 1951, General Douglas MacArthur gave a famous farewell speech. Before a joint session of the House of Congress. He closed that speech by saying. I still remember the refrain of an old but popular barracks ballad. Which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die. They just fade away. And like the old soldier in that ballad. I now close my military career and just fade away. An old soldier who tried to do his duty as God gave him the light. To see that duty. Well, General Joshua is also coming to the end of a stellar military career. He was 110 years old. And he too has done his duty before God. But unlike the soldier in the ballad in Douglas MacArthur, Joshua didn't just fade away. You see, people of influence never just fade away. Before the general dies, Joshua issues a final challenge. To the people that he's led. The old general, he calls the nation to the plain of Shechem, just a few miles north of his home in the mountains of Ephraim. As he'd been doing his entire life for nearly a century now, the general takes a stand and he issues a challenge. And this morning, I want us to examine chapter 24 and Joshua's challenge. You see, in this chapter, we're going to see the anatomy of a challenge. A challenge starts by calling people out. Then it contextualizes a message. It then requires a choice that draws a conclusion and that ends up generally a cry, a battle cry. A challenge involves a call and a context and a choice and a conclusion and a cry. And not everyone, you see, can issue a challenge. Some folks try to avoid challenges altogether. They prefer giving advice or making suggestions or posing a question or offering an opinion or conveying information even or provoking discussion. But a challenge? A challenge is too bold. It's too dogmatic. It's too in-your-face. Well, in contrast, a person of influence isn't afraid to issue a challenge, to draw a line in the sand to throw down the gauntlet, he or she demands a decision. You see, influential people are not afraid to issue challenges. Well, Joshua's final challenge begins when he calls out Israel to Shechem. Verse 1, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, And they presented themselves before God. Now notice, this wasn't a voluntary community meeting or an optional town hall conversation. Joshua serves the nation a summons. For 80 years, the Hebrews had been taking orders from their general. They'd gotten used to following Joshua's commands. And now he calls the elders and the people and the tribal heads and the judges, and the military officers, all Israel is ordered to report. And you see, this is how a challenge starts. A challenge is for somebody, and that somebody knows it's them. They're put on the spot. They get called out. You see, if Joshua was about to offer a suggestion, or just express an opinion, or launch a new blog, or Twitter his feelings, or his activities or his whereabouts. He he wouldn't issue a challenge or a summons. He would just sort of send out an invitation. You know, maybe even an evite. But that's not what he does here. This is a summons. He is calling these people to come. He is mustering the troops one final time. You see, there's a directedness and there's a pointedness about this moment. Perhaps a million men stood on the gathering ground there at Shechem. But to a man... Each one felt that the general had called him personally and individually to be there. You see, challenges, they step on our toes and they call us out and they make demands and they sound like orders. You see, a challenge has a finger and it's pointing at you. Like a manager who trots to the mound to talk to his pitcher or a football coach who huddles up his team or a job foreman who has a powwow with his crew. A challenge involves some pointed conversation, and that's what we have here. Well, Joshua, he calls the nation, and then he contextualizes his message. You see, the general is going to challenge Israel, but for the people to respond correctly to the challenge, he has to put it in the proper context, and this involves a history lesson. Joshua reminds Israel of all that God had had done leading up to this day. Verse 2. And Joshua said to all the people, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Notice the general takes on the mantle of a prophet. Joshua prepares to issue a challenge by first becoming God's mouthpiece. And you see, this is what makes issuing a challenge so difficult for us. For friends give advice and peers share opinions. But a challenge becomes the voice of authority in our lives. Ultimately, when I issue a challenge, I'm speaking on behalf of God in His will. And that's what Joshua does. In the next 12 verses, Joshua trumpets God's word. And you'll notice it's in the first person. He's not just mouthing an opinion. You see, God-given challenges are delivered by folks who don't shy away, who have a confidence to speak for God. Joshua begins his history lesson, Your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, they dwelt on the other side of the river, the Euphrates River, in old times, and they served other gods. And of course, this raises our appreciation of Abraham's faith. To know that his own dead, Terah, was an idolater. It seems that the only impetus in his life that drew him to God was the hunger of his own heart. This is why it's so fitting for us to call Abraham the father of our faith. He was surrounded by idols and idolaters, even at home. And yet faith in the one true God sprung up from his unlikely heart. He refused to settle for less than the truth. And here Joshua speaks for God. He says, then I took your father Abraham. It was God who took Abraham from the other side of the river, led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. And, of course, Joshua passes over the miracle that's behind those words. Gave him Isaac. Abe was 100. Sarah was 90. When God gave him Isaac, God led Abraham. God leased him land. God lined up his heir. And to Isaac, he says, I gave Jacob and Esau. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And here is where the ladies who are involved in our Joseph study could fill in the blank right here. You could talk a lot about Joseph. But Joshua, he jumps over Joseph to Israel's deliverer. He says, also, I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt according to what I did among them. Pharaoh's hands were pried from Israel's throat through ten miraculous plagues. God says, afterward, I brought you out. And then verse 6. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And so they cried out to the Lord. And he put darkness, literally a cloud, a dark cloud between you and the Egyptians. You know, it's interesting. Joshua was an eyewitness of this. And he saw the cloud that separated the two camps that shrouded the Egyptians in darkness and then gave light to Israel. And this cloud impressed him most. It's interesting, he doesn't even mention the parting of the Red Sea. He just talks about this darkness. And then the sea that swallowed up the Egyptian army, talks about it closing. He adds, God brought the sea upon them and covered them. And then verse 7. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. Then you dwelt in the wilderness a long time. And if you've been there... It would have felt like a long time. For decades, for four decades, the Sinai Peninsula was littered with Hebrew bodies and shallow graves. It was the steep price of unbelief. And then finally, verse 8. I brought you into the land of the Amorites who dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. But I gave them into your hand that you might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. These were the warm-up battles that Moses fought east of the Jordan River. And this brings to mind, to Joshua's mind, another of God's victories on the east bank that God contended with with the curses of Balaam and his Moabite sponsors. You see, a sorcerer by the name of Balaam turned up to try to curse Israel. God, though, kept turning Balaam's curses into blessings. Verse 9, Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose to make war against Israel. And sent and called Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Therefore, he continued to bless you. So I delivered you out of his hand. We learn from the story that it's impossible for the devil to curse a person that God has chosen to bless. That's encouraging. And then verse 11, Joshua arrives at the history he knows best. In fact, there was a time when it was known as hope and faith, and courage. Now it's his history. He says, then you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the men of Jericho, they fought against you. There were seven countries, seven nations, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. But I delivered them into your hand. Today we refer to Israel's conquest of Canaan as antiquity. But Joshua, he remembered the blood on his sword. And he remembered the steam coming off the foreheads of his enemies. He had marched and he had fought. And there was never a doubt in his mind that God had won these victories. Not once had Joshua been tempted to take the credit. He even mentions a detail that escapes earlier accounts. God says, I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you. Also, the two kings of the Amorites but not with your sword or with your bow. Notice the Hebrew word here translated hornet. It means stinging wasps. Apparently, the Israeli army had been assisted by a swarm of insects. (laughs) Long before cruise missiles and scuds and patriot interceptors, the Hebrew artillery consisted of long-range wasps. Imagine, though, engaging in battle after you've been stung by a swarm of hornets. Definitely gave Israel an edge. I mean, any Georgia bulldog knows it's no fun to get stung by a pesky yellow jacket. In verse 13, God sums up his role in the conquest of Canaan. He says, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities which you did not build. And you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and olive groves which you did not plant. You see, Israel invaded a land already cultivated and occupied. It was like moving into a house already furnished. This was and is God's grace. It's blessing that we can't manufacture, it's love that we could never earn. It's paid for by another, Jesus, and elsewhere on the cross. And we receive it, not by effort or elbow grease, but by simple faith. This is grace. You know, when I think of Israel's role in the conquest of Canaan, I think of Justin Allen. You see, Justin played basketball for Arizona State, and he was the teammate of the school's all-time leading scorer, a sharpshooter by the name of Eddie House, Plays for the Celtics today. Once in a game against Cal, Eddie scored an unbelievable 61 points. During the win over Cal, Justin Allen, he scored just three points that night. But I like Justin's comment in the post-game interview. He said, hey, I'll be able to tell my grandkids that Eddie House and I combined for 64 against Cal. (laughs) Well, this was also Israel's box score. God scored 61. Israel chipped in three. But together they combined For 64 Isn't that the line, score line of your life? It certainly is mine. It's always God's involvement that makes the difference. This was true of Israel of old, and it's true of us today. If there's any good that we do, if there's a work that we're involved in that accomplishes anything for God, then it's God who deserves the credit and certainly not us. You can be sure that God did the lion's share. And so here's the context for this coming challenge. From Abraham to Moses, now to Joshua, God has been good and gracious to Israel. That's why the nation now dwells in this wonderful land, this new land, this land flowing with milk and honey. Apparently, God loves Israel. And Joshua is hoping that Israel will love God. The folks gathered here here at Shechem, they have a choice to make. This is D-Day. This is Israel's day of decision. Understand, all challenges include a choice. In verse 14, Joshua exhorts them, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. Now, here's a detail we don't know until now. In Egypt, the Hebrew slaves sunk so low in their faith that they worshiped the gods of their captors. Apparently, Moses not only had to overcome Pharaoh's stubbornness, but Israel's unbelief. And what's more, these current Hebrews, after all that God has done, after all that they've seen, after the grace they've received, they also are flirting with idols. For later in this chapter, you can skip down to verse 23. There he tells Israel, put away the foreign gods which are among you. And he speaks there in the present tense. Idolatry was their active sin. Oh, the Hebrews, they mouthed allegiance to God. But in the secret place and in their private world, they were toying with idols that God hated. And this is why Joshua challenges them to serve God in sincerity and in truth. Not in duplicity and deceit. Israel needs to fear God. For he will not tolerate a wayward, hypocritical heart forever. His judgment is swift and stern. And the same folks God saves, he'll judge if they don't remain loyal. And so in verse 15, Joshua lays out their choice. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. Again, recall the context of the challenge. God loves Israel. He lays a foundation for this nation he delivers them from slavery and Satan. He overthrows the Canaanites before them. He gives them crops they didn't weed, and cities they didn't build, and fruit trees they didn't plant. How could serving the Lord ever be construed by these people as an evil? This is preposterous. And yet it happens. For even pastors and church members and even committed Christians can sometimes view Serving the Lord as an evil. Hey, if all doesn't go just right in your service for God, how quick are you to throw in the towel, to move on, to get involved in something else? Of course, we don't call it an evil. We just say it's a hassle. That's what we say. Oh, resisting temptation. Well, that's a hassle. Serving ungrateful people, that's just a hassle. Giving to God when I'm not getting from God, well, that's a hassle. Self-sacrificing and loving my spouse like I should, that's just a hassle. Renewing my mind rather than just letting it wander, that can be a hassle. Getting along with people different from me, well, that's just a hassle I don't need. Being mocked and looked down on for my faith, oh, that's a hassle. The other day, a friend of mine asked me how I was doing. I told him, I choose great. (laughs) Now, I had reason to be discouraged and to grumble and to be fearful. But I also had reasons to be thankful and to be grateful and to be faithful and to be joyful. And so really, it all boiled down to a choice, didn't it? It always does. And today, I choose great. Well, here in verse 15, Joshua challenges Israel, Choose this day who you will serve. He brought Israel to Shechem, not to fellowship or picnic or wing fling or chili cook off or to sting or study. He brought them there to choose. For a challenge requires a choice. And no choice, by the way, is still a choice. Jesus warns us, He who is not with me is against me. You can't choose by default. Everybody worships someone or something. And it's sad, but idolatry is still alive and well. Sex or drugs or sports or porn or video games or money or success or popularity or convenience or comfort or technology. We can make an idol out of anything. Hey, anything in your life that operates out from under God's scrutiny has become your idol. Here's what happens. We say we serve God, but we allow a certain action or an attitude or a relationship to enter our lives. And we let it sneak in. We we let it operate apart from the grid of God's Word. We don't filter it through that grid. We give it its own autonomy. So that it makes its own rules. We even quarter off a space in our lives for a rival king to call his own shots. Hey, you, you need to call it what it is. It's a foreign god. It's an idol. And in God's sight, it's an abomination. And this is why you have to choose for yourself who you're going to love, who you're going to serve, who you're going to let sit on the throne of your life. Now, I don't really want to tell you how I know this information, but in traffic court, you can enter what's called a no-low plea. You ever heard of this? You can plead no-low. That means that you neither admit guilt nor are you claiming innocence. It's just a pass. You pay a fine, but it stays off your insurance. That's the point. And yet in the court of God, there is no no no-low plea. There's no skirting the truth or straddling the center line. In the court of God, you've got to come down on one side or the other. It's here or there. It's right or left. It's in or out. It's yes or no. You've got to fish or cut bait. And Joshua challenges Israel to choose. And, of course, this took courage. Apparently, the aged general, he wasn't worried about being politically correct or the fairness doctrine. Or the opposition's rebuttal. Or the ultimate 21st century crime offending another religion. Joshua fears God. And his only concern is offending God. In chapter 24, General Joshua, he orders an entire nation to get off the fence. Reminds me of a letter sent to Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Diedrich was a devoted, devoted Christian from Germany. But when Hitler came to power, the faithful pastor, he became disillusioned. Bonhoeffer left Germany in Nazi occupation, and he went to Germany. He went to England where he pastored a German congregation. All was well until one day he received a letter from a fellow pastor who had stayed entrenched in Nazi-run Germany. The letter that Diedrich received, it posed a challenge. When he opened it, it read, One simply cannot become weary now. Still less can one go to England. What in the world would you want to do there? Think of this. You are a German. The house of your church is on fire. And you know enough to be able to help. Diedrich, you must return to your post by the next ship. What a challenge. The letter pierced the man's heart. And Bonhoeffer was back in Germany 16 months later. Diedrich Bonhoeffer died for Jesus' sake in a Nazi prison. But such a challenge, it calls a person out. And it puts the situation in context. And it requires a choice. And then it forces that person to draw a conclusion. Joshua calls on Israel to choose. But understand the general has already made his choice. He's come to Shechem with his mind made up. He he doesn't need to take a poll here or check with his friends first. This is why there's no quiver or hesitancy in his voice, no ambiguity in his convictions. Joshua shouts, so there'll be no doubt. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. there, There have been times in the past when my kids have wanted to indulge in a questionable activity And I've had to say no. And it seems I always tend to reply, Oh, Dad, everybody else is doing it. And my answer to that is simple. Who cares? Who cares what everybody else is doing? You know, in a river, the only fish that drift with the current are the dead fish. Toilet paper goes with the flow, not Christian's. True Christianity is a definitive faith. It's a faith that stands up. And I'm afraid this is the weakness of the modern church. Nobody today seems to have the backbone to draw a conclusion. It's all up for debate and discussion and dialogue, not declaration. We're like the guy who was so indecisive, his favorite color was plaid. Churches today refuse to stake out positions and take a moral or spiritual stand. Many church leaders leaders today, they lack the guts to differentiate right from wrong. And it's tragic. In 2005, Larry King interviewed Joel Osteen, pastor of America's largest Christian church, Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas, has 40,000 plus attendees every Sunday. But on the show, when Larry asked him if Jews and Muslims are going to hell, people who obviously reject Jesus as their Messiah, Joel danced and hedged and weaved and bobbed. He said, finally, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. Oh, Joel kept smiling through it all, but he refused to draw a conclusion. His interview was a classic case of religious tolerance run amok. Hey, if Christians can't say that people who trust in Jesus go to heaven and people who reject Jesus go to hell, well, then we might as well close up shop. The Bible isn't ambiguous on this subject. There is great clarity. If Christians can be definitive about anything, it should be salvation through Jesus Christ. People of influence refuse to sidestep the truth. They're willing to challenge a lost world with the exclusivity of the claims of Christ. They draw conclusions and they possess convictions. They scope out on what he'll to die on. Influential people understand what's non-negotiable. I hope you're a person of influence. And Joshua not only draws this conclusion for himself, but he does so for his whole household. His whole family asked for me and my house. Some of you dads, some of you head of households probably didn't know that you can pledge allegiance on behalf of someone else. You can't. Parents today have been filled with this nonsense that they can't make spiritual decisions for their kids. Supposedly enlightened parents let kids choose for themselves what they'll believe. Liberal liberal authorities insist that a parent who makes religious decisions for their kid is guilty of child abuse. Well, if that's the case, let me be the first parent to get arrested. I've had four teenagers now, and and trust me, I'm well aware of this, that kids, when they come of age, they start to make their own decisions whether the parents approve of them or not. Understand that. In fact, I want my kids to have a mind of their own. Rather than parrot me, I've taught them to follow the truth. To have their own moral convictions. I hope their beliefs will always be biblical, but there's no guarantee. And yet that still doesn't stop me from concluding that while my kids are in my house, under my influence, under my roof, they're going to respect and serve my Lord. I love my children with all my heart. i die for one of my kids. But I love Jesus more than I love my kids. And I let them know. And I'd rather upset my child than offend my Lord. There are standards that my kids will abide by whether they like it or not. Man, it's simple math at my house. Eat my food, sleep in my bed, equal serve my God and go to my church. And I expect the kids to like it. There's something wrong when a Christian parent stands down while a child under their roof makes a mockery of their God. Parents need to say it and they need to mean it. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. On September the 11th, 2001, passengers on United Flight 93 concluded that they had to stop the terrorists on board from using the plane as a weapon against America. And they had a battle cry for their operation. Through the cell phone transmissions, you could hear them shout, Let's roll! Maybe you remember that. Well, Joshua's conclusion also ends up a battle cry. Oftentimes, conclusions become rallying cries. Over the years, Joshua's famous cry here has adorned bookmarks and cross stitch and plaques and wedding albums. You see it so often in Christian circles. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And yet let me ask you this morning, has this been etched into your heart? Has this become the battle cry of your life? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, people of influence aren't just counselors or comforters. They're challengers. We are challenged by God, and then we issue challenge, challenges to the people around us. When you read the rest of the chapter and then on through the book of Judges, you'll see how that, how that Israel only paid lip service to the general's challenge this day. J- just a few years after Joshua's death, These same folks became full-blown idolaters. You know, like Joshua, we don't always see the effects of our influence. At times, our challenges fall on deaf ears. And it gets discouraging. And you think you've failed. And you assume that your life and your efforts have gone for naught. And you can get bummed out so quickly. General Joshua's influence might have been ignored by his contemporaries. But note this. 3,500 years later, you and I are still being inspired by his life, the challenging life that he lived. You see, comfort and chatter and counsel and comedy, they're here today and they're gone tomorrow. They have a short shelf life. They're easily forgotten. But a challenge sticks and it stays. And a challenge has an echo. It echoes in minds and in hearts and down through families and within culture and even through the halls of history. It's hard to escape a challenge. That's why people of influence are challengers. I hope you'll be a challenger. I hope you'll live a life that challenges and then dare to issue challenges to others. And if you do, your influence, like an echo, will reverberate down the canyon walls. Don't forget, influential people issue challenges. Father, we thank you for your love for us today. And Lord, we have been challenged today to live for Jesus, to choose this day whom we will serve. Lord, I pray that we all would choose wisely, choose correctly, that we all would conclude in our hearts today that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, I love you. I thank you for this day. I pray, Lord, that you'll work in our hearts. As we take communion this morning, as we worship you, I pray that we'll open our hearts to you and that we'll receive from you the encouragement, the the strength, the fortitude that we need to accept the challenge in our lives. Lord, we love you. Help us, Lord, to be people that challenge others by the life we live, by the words we speak. Help us, Lord, to be people of influence. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open for you. Come and take communion. Just as Pastor Sandy has is, uh, issued a challenge, you have the opportunity to remember the Savior who inter- issued the ultimate challenge to bow your knee to receive Him into your heart. So, as you take communion today, we ask you to just remember the call that God has called to our hearts.